My guest today is Esther Armar. She's an award-winning international journalist, playwright, media communications lecturer, writer, and author. Her critically acclaimed book, Emotional Justice, A Roadmap for Racial Healing, is a number one new release on Amazon in the categories of general sociology of race relations and cultural anthropology. Emotional Justice is her vision and creation. It's a framework developed and worked across London, Ghana, South Africa, New York, and Chicago over a 15-year period. Esther Armar, welcome to Full Body Frequency. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a fan, so this is a total pleasure. Wonderful. Now, before we begin, for full disclosure, I must say I am a consulting training facilitator serving as part of a global team with the Armar Institute of Emotional Justice. You sure is. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Whenever our team begins working on new projects, new training, I often think of James Baldwin and why the work of emotional justice is so necessary. Baldwin shares, when white folks say, I wasn't one of those people who enslaved you, he replies, I wasn't one of those on the auction block, but you continue to treat me this way. Mm. Yeah, so early on, we would find ourselves using the language of diversity, equity, and inclusion to explain emotional justice because it was expedient and DEI, of course, is in the cultural zeitgeist. And in some ways, the language, uh, the language to market emotional justice was unsettled. However, emotional justice is quite different from diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why don't you tell us why the work is different from that of diversity, equity, inclusion, and what emotional justice is specifically? Emotional justice is a racial healing roadmap that um, is specifically about what it means to deal with a legacy of untreated trauma, to both deal with it and heal from it. That legacy is the result of the oppressive systems, enslavement, colonialism, apartheid that shaped all of us, black, brown, indigenous, white. It shaped all of us, it shaped how we see ourselves and it shaped how we see each other. And so the real simple blunt fact is DEI is a model that centers whiteness. And that's because it really stretches all the way back to the global racial healing model, the Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission that was in South Africa, that really is lauded and applauded and is the foundation for everything else. The challenge of that model is it very much centers whiteness. And it did then historically and DEI, which is a kind of a contemporary version in some ways, does so now. It doesn't work for black people. It doesn't work and therefore it doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work for white people, it doesn't work for brown people, it doesn't work for indigenous people. What it does do is tick boxes and make a load of money. Um, and the amazing professor and author Pamela Newkirk wrote about this, she wrote an amazing book called Diversity Inc. That was literally about the multi-million dollars, multi-million dollar business that is diversity. That makes a whole lot of money, doesn't create a whole load of structural change. Emotional justice is different because it starts by saying you've got to decenter whiteness if you're going to talk about transformational, organizational change. We do that practically, um, we do that in action, we do that organizationally, it's long-lasting and it works. 
So let's step back for a minute. Um, in the introduction, I mentioned that the journey, your journey to emotional justice has been 15 years. Share that journey and how you unlearned the language of whiteness, the language of centering whiteness. The journey starts in Ghana um, back in 1997. And it really starts with my, my beautiful mama breaking a almost 30 year silence. She shares the story of what happened to our family in our home in February, 1966. Now for the rest of um, Ghana, February, 1966 is a date in history when there was a military coup and the first president of a post-independent African nation, Kwame Nkrumah, his leadership ended. So that date marks a military coup that ends his presidency. That's how I've always known that day. What I learned was that that day is also really the story of a family losing their home, of having a kind of violence enter into our home and enter into our space, and a trauma enter into our space, into our bodies, into our family that did not have any language until my mother broke her silence in 1997. What that began for me was a journey. I had always felt as somebody who was I was a professional person, I'm educated, I was a journalist, I was doing really well, but I definitely had my own emotional trauma. I didn't understand it, but I definitely felt damaged. What I learned that is what I thought was damage had a context, had a name, had a reason, and, uh, and a connection to our history. So learning that my personal trauma was connected to my family and my national history started a journey to think about what other traumas did we have as a people and what did they connect to. So it starts in Ghana. Then I go to Philadelphia for the Million Woman March and really contextualize what happened in Ghana when I meet with Winnie Mandela, who's the keynote of the Million Woman March. And she tells me this beautiful story about the importance of listening to um, Black South African women when I share the story of my mother breaking her silence. That then takes me to South Africa and the chance to listen to the testimony of Steve Biko's widow in Chiki Biko, to interview Desmond Tutu, to interview some of the leaders of the ANC, and to really understand the Truth of Reconciliation Commission is a model about emotionality that really is informed by soothing the anxiety of white people and whiteness. And that model is applauded all over the world it made um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu this kind of icon of forgiveness. And I get it. But that is a, not a model that can work in a 21st century world, dealing with a global pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, a major racial reckoning, the backlash from that racial reckoning, heightened levels of racism that make us feel like we're living in an era that we thought we'd already left historically. You put all of those things together, we needed a new racial healing model. And that journey from Ghana to Philadelphia, to South Africa, and then to New York, where I worked in community with scholars and activists and artists and journalists, specifically black scholars, artists and activists and journalists to really explore what it means to create a racial healing roadmap that centers global blackness. And in centering global blackness, we were really centering um, humanity. And so the first thing, of course, is the language. You've got to develop the language, develop the naming of something. Because, you know, so often, Laura, when it comes to the emotional, 
people are dismissive of it. They gender it. It's hysterical. It's not to be trusted. It's, it's all of these hyperboles. But actually, thinking about the emotional as both structural and as political is a very different way of thinking about it. And then attaching specifically the idea of justice to the emotional, decentering whiteness and centering global blackness. It then turns into a working framework that's really designed to move us closer to the kind of liberation that doesn't just privilege some people and extract labor from other people, but it actually it's about our humanity. And if something doesn't decenter whiteness, then honestly, it is not about centering humanity. It's just not. And we have to name it, we have to say it, we have to do so unapologetically. And that's why emotional justice exists. That's why it was born. And then it was institutionalized by um, the organization that I lead, the Amar Institute of Emotional Justice. It's an extraordinary journey and a ride of trauma and discovery and healing and pain and stories and power and sacrifice and community and courage of rage and blood and bone. It's all of those things. But literally that is the path that black people have walked in order to get to any kind of freedom. And emotional justice is saying our hearts and minds, not just our, our, our um, the laws that legislate our civil rights, but the need for a justice for our emotional selves. That matters too, and that's what emotional justice is. Wow. Every time I hear you describe emotional justice, I just get moved and I become more committed to it every day. So thank you for that. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency. And my guest today is the one and only Esther Armar. She's the founder and CEO of the Armar Institute of Emotional Justice. I almost want to call it a global think tank headquartered mm. in Accra, Ghana. I'm gonna I'm I'm use that. <laughs> okay, there we go. I like that. We're talking about the emotional work that white, black, and brown and indigenous people need to do to end systemic inequity. And we've touched a little bit on it and we're definitely gonna dive a little bit more into it. And we're gonna talk about the emotional work, uh, exploring, identifying, and severing the connections in our relationship to power and race that uphold systemic inequity by unlearning the language of whiteness. And Esther talked a little bit about that uh, a second ago. And to unlearning the language of whiteness, I say, happy Black History Month in the USA. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that makes Love me it. happy. <laughs> Love it. So, so one of the things that we do with emotional justice is we privilege narrative over number. And you touched about you touched on that a second ago, but we again privilege narrative over numbers. Why is that important? Everybody talks about data, big data, the importance of numbers. And numbers offer information, but narrative provides crucial connection and connection to those parts of ourselves that are unnamed, that are unacknowledged, that are unidentified, really matter, especially for global black people. Why? Because we are a people that has been dehumanized. And to be dehumanized means to have been robbed of the things that make you human, the things that make you a, a feeling being in the world. To be a feeling being in the world is to come with 
at the breadth and the panorama of emotions, the things that make you human. So then to be robbed of those is to be dehumanized. And then, then to be dehumanized makes you a target of violence because if you're not human, then you don't feel loss. Then your loss doesn't mean anything. And there's a whole rabbit hole that we go down. And so narrative is about providing connection for black people to the unacknowledged parts of themselves. You know, when I talk about the idea of severing this emotional connection to power that centers whiteness, that's true for all of us. All of us have that unlearning to do. Centering whiteness is what we've all been taught. We've all been nurtured in that narrative that whiteness is the world. Whiteness built the world. Whiteness saves the world. Whiteness civilizes the world. We've all been schooled in that. And being intellectually conscious, intellectually brilliant, activist-minded, all of those things doesn't mean that you've necessarily emotionally disinvested from centering whiteness. Because what that requires is an emotional work that has really been identified for everybody, black, brown, indigenous, and white. And when I say we all have work to do for global black folk, that piece about narrative and connection, it's connecting to how the legacies of untreated trauma from the impressive systems that shape us, from enslavement, colonialism, apartheid, how they shape how we connect to ourselves. So for example, in Black History Month in the United States, the United States is uh, a nation built on stolen labor, on enslaved labor. And what ha that has done is created an identity for Black people between labor and value. Mm -hmm. In other words, the way that you recognize and honor yourself as a person is through what you produce. But not just what you produce, it's production at levels that are exhausting, debilitating, depleting, and that is what is defined as useful. And whilst we have fought for a freedom from um, engaging in stolen physical labor, emotional justice says, okay, but there's the emotional labor that is the result of that particular relationship. And the emotional labor is about connecting your work, your labor to your value. So in other words, the only way I have value is in the work that I do. And not just regular work that I can do more, be more, give me more, I'll do more and more and more and more. And I may be exhausted and depleted and resentful and enraged and breaking down, but I'll still take it on and I'll show you how much I can do minus any kind of rest. And so um, the importance of narrative and connection for global black folk is to understand the connections between value and labor in order to unlearn them and center rest and replenishment. And then for white folk, it's for them to learn about their emotional connection um, to power that centers whiteness. And when I say that, I mean, you may know politically as a progressive person that power sharing is a great thing. You may know politically that disinvesting from harmful systems is the way forward for humanity. You may know that intellectually, but you may believe that politically. What I'm challenging is that you still have an emotional connection to power that centers whiteness. How do we know that? The idea that white people should always be leaders and black, brown, and indigenous people should always be learners. That is how the emotional connection to power that centers whiteness manifests. And when there is a call, for black people to lead the spaces and places um, that we should or to have partnership in that space. 
the levels of backlash are extraordinary. People are not, it's not backlash against an intellectual understanding. It's backlash against an identity that makes power about whiteness and specifically white masculinity. It is, I don't know if we can curse on this show, it's an almighty shit show. That's really what it is. Go forth. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> Go forth and multiply as you curse. Um, it's an almighty shit show and it's not one of our making, mm -hmm. uh, but it's one we have to, there's, it's one we've bought into and we have to disinvest from and that's our emotional work. And white people's emotional work is about breaking up with this relationship to power that centers whiteness. And no matter what your intellectual or your ideological or your philosophical understanding is, that power should be shared, your emotional connection to power still centers whiteness and specifically white men. Mm -hmm. um, and without an active, an active ongoing practice to change that, it's always just lip service, box ticking, and no real change, just performance or the illusion of change. And that shit can't keep working. We cannot keep doing it. We just can't. Yeah, it's not sustainable. It's, not, it's only sustainable if you're a white man and if you're a white woman profiting from um, um, supporting a white man. If you're everybody else, shit is wild and crazy and totally unacceptable. And it's dehumanizing and it is killing us. We are dying in all kinds of ways, literally, but also emotionally, spiritually. It is exhausting. It is depleting. It cannot go on. And it has to be not just called out, but then praxis and resources and tools created to make change. And that's what we do. That's our work. That's what we do. And indeed, indeed. Yes. So I'm going to harken back to the book for a second. I'm going back and forth here because there's so much to unpack. You've done something unusual. At least I think it's unusual. Um, your book, Emotional Justice, A Roadmap for Racial Healing, has forwards by two leading voices. So that's one of the unusual things. Obviously, the subject matter is unusual as well. Again, two voices, uh, one in the space of white folks doing their work and the other lifting up the Black feminist voice. So we've got Robin D'Angelo and Dr. Brittany Cooper, respectively. Why two forwards and why D'Angelo and Cooper? So initially it was always one forward and it was always Dr. Brittany Cooper. Mm. I had always wanted uh, her to write the forward. She's somebody whom I have a, a unique relationship as it relates to emotional justice because I really met her because she came to one of my events. I used to do these annual discussion series of emotional justice with um, scholars and activists and journalists. I mentioned that earlier. And she was in the audience. That's literally how I met her. It, it kind of grew, but we've known each other for over 10 years now. From the audience, to being interviewed, to being a participant, to becoming, very, to my, to becoming my sister and my dear sister friend. So it was always um, Dr. Brittany Cooper. Dr. Robin D'Angelo was somebody that I interviewed for my book, partly because I wanted to challenge the notion of white fragility as I understood it and um, wanted to discuss that. But I like to, to have a challenge in person, in communication. And so she participated in that. It was actually my editor who suggested that she be a forward writer as well. And I mean, honestly, I didn't even know that you could have more than one forward writer. So I said, can you have two forward? Like, I honestly didn't know. And he said, you know, why not? Is there a rule? I said, you know, I didn't know. What made it valuable and important for me in the end was because 
Emotional justice is a racial healing roadmap that identifies the emotional work of black, brown, indigenous, and white people. And the heavy lifting of that work really is, needs to be done and must be done by white people. And so we had begun conversations about emotional justice. And she had said to me that listening to you talk about it, I understand emotional justice is actually the missing piece in what it means to dismantle racism in ways that I hadn't necessarily thought about. And of course, she didn't know that Dr. Brittany Cooper had written the same thing about it as it relates to Black people. Mm. And so it was this powerful parallel reality that a, a, a leading powerhouse, badass Black woman feminist is talking about emotional justice as the missing piece in terms of Black liberatory love and a Black liberation framework. And a white woman is talking about it. Another leading voice in doing this work of challenging white supremacist realities and racism within white people. And it's saying the same thing as it relates to white people. So from the perspective of what the racial healing roadmap is designed to do, it absolutely makes sense. And so that's how they came to be. And then we did a wonderful event in New Jersey hosted by the Miss Foundation and uh, Grey Horse Communications when me and Dr. Cooper and Dr. D'Angelo all came together and talked about it with an audience of other folks from the world of philanthropy. Will that conversation be released publicly? And then after the conversation, that conversation happened, is there something that you all are building upon? Uh, so for me, it was always about lifting up emotional justice. Mm -hmm. um, emotional justice is a racial healing roadmap that's always worked in community, partnership and collaboration. They are not eternal collaborations or eternal um, exchanges but they are exchanges that matter for that particular moment. So the conversation with Dr. Cooper, Dr. Angelo, for that part of it is done, but that's an, the ongoing foundational approach of the framework is to work in community and collaboration and in conversation, actually. It's how it literally was built. The conversation that I had with my mother where she breaks her silence, the conversation with Winnie Mandela, the interview with Desmond Tutu, the conversations with Inchiki Biko, the conversations and the dialogues in New York. So that is the nature of the framework. This is an ongoing, um, it's an extension of what always was and how the, how the framework moves. I'm gonna get into something that I think I'm most proud of. The work that we do with emotional justice is so exciting because it impacts folks at both the macro and the micro cellular levels inside and outside of their bodies. And as we say, and we, as we have seen, emotional justice is a visionary framework for racial healing that operationalizes hearts and minds. In that context, talk about the gender-based work that Black folks must do. Naming the healing that we must do as global Black folk, it was important to identify how we are all shaped by the global beast that is white supremacy and we're all traumatized by it. Black women, Black men, Black people are not responsible for white supremacy, but it has shaped us and it has shaped how we engage with each other. And what emotional justice is saying is that we need to do our healing work because of how it has shaped us and how that shaping informs how we engage, how we love ourselves, how we love one another. And so for black women specifically, emotional justice creates love languages. We talk about unlearning the language of whiteness. But if you're going to unlearn something, you've got to replace it with something else. Mm -hmm. So in emotional justice, we call them the EJ love languages. And the specific love language for um, Black women and Black men is intimate revolution. 
but the work is different. So for intimate revolution for like women, it's very much about disinvesting from the idea of the idea of being the sole first responder to the entire global black community, no matter the cost or consequence to your own emotional well-being, your spiritual health. It is the idea of disinvesting from a grind culture that, you know, grind is really the contemporary legacy of stolen labor, like literally working yourself to death. And that death may not be physical, but it's certainly emotional, it's spiritual, it's the quality of your life. And unlearning this notion that the only value you have is in the labor that you produce. And the more that you can produce, the more valuable you are as a human being. And also that if you are not producing, you are somehow unworthy and unvaluable. It is the idea of unlearning the black women of what I call emotional currency. That's one of the languages of whiteness. Emotional currency being a phrase that's about treating black women as if they're part of an economy. So their value appreciates or depreciates according to the service they give to people outside of themselves, to all white people, to um, men, to everybody outside of themselves. Again, no matter the cost or consequence to their emotional health, their physical health. Of course, health has become a much more mainstream conversation because of COVID. But the murder of George Floyd for emotional justice led us to talk very specifically about our emotional health and the emotional health that comes from converging pandemics and colliding traumas. So the converging pandemics, the pandemic of, of COVID, the pandemic of police brutality, and the pandemic of a resistance that requires an incessant level of protest mm -hmm. and a cycle of being witness to violence. Those create this collision of traumas that have an impact on who we are. And so for black women, it's unlearning this relationship to more and more and more and more labor. For black men, it's very specifically about their relationship to a masculinity that is birthed in white supremacy and the language of whiteness, which says that white men are the conquer or die, rule or ruin kind of dudes. That notion of white masculinity that is really about dominion, subjugation and exploitation is one that black men, um, so many black men buy into. So what does that mean? Well, if we're talking about white supremacy, which means you are one of the groups of people being subjugated and exploited and yet, dominion is how you understand yourself as a man. Who do you become when that has been your reality? How do you then flex dominion in the world? Well, too often it happens with people who look just like you or within your communities where you are both protected, but also wounded and traumatized because again, we're all shaped by white supremacy, right? And so mm -hmm. it's understanding that I always say it's not about bad black men, good black men, high value black men, six figure earning black men, six pack black men, ain't about none of that shit. It's about recognizing that as black men, you have emotional work to do. As black women, we have emotional work to do. And that the work, the emotional work of black men is for black men to do. Nobody can do your emotional work for you, that you must do it. And that for black men, that's about creating a masculinity that is about safety, empathy, and accountability for and with each other. Because what's really been happening is that black men are still trying to negotiate with white supremacy about value and being seen as human. How That's never gonna be a winning um, uh, negotiation. It will always find you on the opposite end of a loaded gun. 
-hmm. because white supremacy's version of masculinity requires somebody be exploited. Roe v. Wade being overturned, control over bodies. That's literally how white supremacy has defined white masculinity. And so for black men, there is not refuge or respite or revolution in that space. So you doing your emotional work means becoming more emotionally literate about your own expansive particular experience as a black man, developing an, uh, an emotional vocabulary about the complexities of what it is to be a black man in today's world, and then doing the emotional work to create a masculinity of safety, empathy, and accountability, first and foremost, for yourself and for each other as black men, as brothers. And that will then shape how you show up in the world, how you love, how you engage with your community. But it's really important in emotional justice that we understand that there is a difference. There's a difference in what the work we have to do is and that we identify and name that specifically, decisive, decisively and emphatically. Absolutely. And I, I love the passage in your book entitled For the Love of Black Men. And it really unpacks what you just spoke about. So this is from the chapter Intimate Reckoning. Here we go. But first, white people will need to breathe. <sighs> because when white people hear the phrase, the language of whiteness, and about the need to unlearn it, they immediately get defensive, uncomfortable, and pissed. It feels like an attack. The defense mechanisms kick in and the explaining, excusing, and negating go into full effect. That's because white people conflate white people with the language of whiteness. They are not the same thing. The language of whiteness is a narrative. It's a narrative we are all taught about how the world came to be and our place in it as white, black, and brown people, women, men, children. It is a story of who you are to whiteness and what whiteness is to you. Languages are made up of words and phrases. We learn how to pronounce them, how they go together in order for us to communicate. Did you learn French at school, for example? Teacher, class, repeat after me. Bonjour, class, bonjour, teacher. Good job, that means good day in French. The language of whiteness ain't French. It's not made up of words that we translate and that mean the same thing to any French speaking person. No, it is spoken through how we see ourselves as global black, brown, indigenous, and white people. And its meanings are fractured through the lens of how we see one another and how we are seen. The language of whiteness is about how we live and engage. It is the story of who we have been told we are, who we can and cannot be. It is a story that is a lethal, deadly fiction, treated as fact. You can choose not to learn French. You can't choose not to learn the language of whiteness. The language of whiteness is not simply taught, it is enforced. It was birthed in sure, swift, brutal, and deadly historical systems, enslavement, colonialism, and apartheid. Each was violent. These systems were about separation and superiority. They produced narratives of struggle, salvation, survival, and surrender. They were about black, and white. These systems have contemporary consequences that manifest in our world to this very day. They carry a lingering legacy of untreated trauma that manifests in each of us, in all of us. And we all live with and deal with that legacy and its manifestations. 
And so folks just need to go out and get this book, Emotional Justice, get the book. <laughs> a roadmap for racial healing. Uh, your life will change because of it. And one of the things that I find so wonderful about emotional justice, and I will say this over and over again, is that it's not one and done. It's not you hit it and quit it sort of training. It's an ongoing practice. And therein lies another difference in DEI and emotional justice. With DEI, it's kind of a, a surface sort of change, a policy sort of change, but it's not necessarily a daily practice outside of the workplace. With emotional right. justice, it's very personal, it's very individual. It can actually even be institutional, but it's moved by the individual and that's part of its incredible power. And so when we talk about this power and we talk about, I'm going back to uh, a concept that you have. Well, actually, we're, we're going to name it because it's important to name things. But I'm going back to Black men and Black women, specifically with revolutionary Black grace. And as we talk about our individual and our personal work to do, how does emotional justice work as a Pan-African concept? I love that question. The important thing to understand is emotional justice as a racial healing roadmap is always about the individual and its connection to the institutional. It is always about transforming, treating the emotional as structural. So it's never just personal work alone. It's never just individual work alone. It's individual work that connects to institutional change because without the interconnection between the two, I would say individual work alone ain't it, and individuals contribute to sustaining, upholding institutional structures. So the intersection matters. Mm -hmm. Emotional justice is a racial healing roadmap that was birthed in a global blackness. It was literally birthed through the journey of a black woman crossing oceans and borders in, in community with black people, from my mother in Ghana, to black women in Philadelphia, African-American women in Philadelphia, and a black South African woman in Philadelphia, Winnie Mandela, to South Africa, um, black people, to then coming to New York and engaging with black people, to being in London, dealing with black, black British folk, often Caribbean heritage. And so the journey of building it has been about being in community with globally black people. And so much of what's important about racial healing and why it's an ongoing practice. It is recognizing that we are building new relationships to each other as global black people. And these have to be generationally deep in order to undo the legacy of untreated trauma that is generations deep. The cancer of DEI is that because it centers whiteness, it's always gonna be a box ticking exercise because whiteness is dictating that, okay, we've done this, so we're done. Like, what's good? You know, we're done. And the reality is you cannot heal 500 years of trauma with a three-week workshop. That right Unless, there. That right there. You cannot. You never could. But it also means that's not your intention. Mm -hmm. Your intention is the illusion of a healing that makes somebody some money mm -hmm. but does very, very little for um, Black people and makes no change for white folk. Revolutionary Black Grace is saying to us as Black people, it's Black History Month in America because I'm going to so I'm going to make it specifically about American Blackness and African Blackness just in this answer. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of unlearning 
an American blackness that is seen as criminal and immoral and unlearning an African blackness that is seen as wretched and poverty stricken. Mm -hmm. Both of us have been taught narratives about each other, whether we've ever traveled to those places or not. So you have, I'm talking to you now from Accra, Ghana. There's all kinds of people in Ghana who have very clear ideas of what they perceive African-Americans or blackness in America to be that has nothing to do with the trip that they have ever taken. There are lots of people who are African-American who have very specific ideas of what they think the continent is, having never taken a trip to the continent. We've all developed ideas that have not necessarily anything to do with our actual individual travel. Who do those narratives serve? If what you think of blackness is this thing that is criminal, wretched, and therefore repulsive, what you are creating is a narrative of about a blackness that you do not want to be, one that is not like you, one that you would never see as family. And that's its intention. The language of whiteness wants a segregated blackness because a segregated blackness, a divided blackness, is a blackness that serves white supremacy. And revolutionary black grace is saying that we are a black people globally, period. But our blackness has this beautiful panorama of experiences as a result of a history that has forever changed us. We can't change that part. We can honor all the different ways that we are black, African-American, black British, um, being Caribbean, being black in Brazil, black in Latin America, and being black in Europe. All of these specificities and particularities of blackness, all of them matter and they should be honored. The, the thing that connects us is as global black people, we have fought for our liberation, for our humanity, and for a culture that is ours, even when we've had to rebuild it because of loss. But we fought for something that is ours. And so we are a people for whom revolution is in our DNA. It's how we even get here. But what has so often happened is we give each other so little grace as black people. And grace is the beginning of a compassion that changes an engagement. So the idea of a grace that is specifically black, that is rooted in revolution, because that's how we came, that's how we have fought as a people, creates this idea of a revolutionary black grace. And it's all about what does it mean to approach each other as black people with a compassion and with a tenderness, with a brotherhood and a sisterhood, a belonging, a family that we don't even necessarily always feel real talk with there's a lot of conflict between us. So it's not about some kumbaya magical thing, but it is about saying we are a people that builds the future that we cannot even see. And a revolutionary black race, emotional justice is advocating for us to build a collective black healing praxis that's about seeing each other as family in order to explore what it means to build together. There is no healing road for us as a global black people outside of each other. There just isn't one. And so revolutionary black grace is our global black love language. It's for us, it's about us, it celebrates us, it honors us, but it also recognizes that we have to wrestle and grapple with the conflict between us. But staying at the table of global blackness that's part of our racial healing work. Amen, Ashe. <laughs> I can't. Amen. It just, I mean, every time we talk about revolutionary Black grace, again, it's one of the things 
that excites me so much about practicing emotional justice every single day, every single day. And every single day. day. And um, so what's next for you? What's next for emotional justice and the Armar Institute of Emotional Justice? So we're very excited that this year in March, we begin our Emotional Justice in the Academy tour. And uh, we're taking emotional justice into universities. And it's very exciting that universities globally, because the idea is to explore how emotional justice can be um, engaged in the academy, whether it's being taught, workshops, electives, how can this framework and this roadmap be entered into the academy so that it is taught. And so we're excited to do universities on the East Coast. We're going to be going down to South Carolina. I'll be going to South Africa and the University of Cape Town. And then I'll be back again in the States in um, October, hopefully doing the West Coast as well. So this is a really exciting next stage. That's what it's all about. But then I'm also working on the second book. And the second book is actually all about emotional justice for Black men. One of the things that I highlight is that emotional justice is a racial healing roadmap that centers um, Black people. And so part of what I wanted to do was a body of work that was for the two major demographics, Black women and Black men. So the first book really introduces the framework, explains what it is, how I built it, and names the individual love languages. The second one is talking specifically about the two demographics that are the centered demographics of this racial healing roadmap. The artist uh, Rashid Johnson spoke about Blackness has to be the center. You just have to be the center, not argue to be the center, not advocate to be the center, but simply be the center. And so this next book is specifically about that. It is defined and described as a love letter to Black men in the specific love language of emotional justice. That means it's about doing your emotional work, but it's exploring what that work is, why it matters. I'm really excited about you know, that book and the work that I'm doing with that. And um, the projects that we're working on with the Alma Institute of Emotional Justice, every book has a project attached to it. The other project we're going to be working on is Black Grief Matters. Black Grief Matters is a project that looks at loss and grief through the lens specifically of Black women and girls. We're going to be starting with um, a grief, a creative grief journal. And we're very excited to be partnering with um, an organization called The Fine Design to do this work. And there will also be a book, the third book, which is gonna be called Black Grief Matters, is exploring loss and grief through the lens of black women and creating the language of grief through the lens of black women in order to create a vocabulary, an emotional vocabulary about a compassion and tenderness towards black girls and black women when so often the emotional environment in which black girls and black women operate is too often hostility to their their emotionality, their humanity. And what does it mean to change that? And again, it's saying you've got to build the world that you want to see. And when it comes to emotionality, that's true too. So that's where we are. So it's exciting. All right. Well, Esther, my sister in emotional justice, thank you for being here with me today. For more information on Esther Armar, her book, Emotional Justice, A Roadmap for Racial Healing, her upcoming academy tour in both South Africa and the U.S., or the Armar Institute of Emotional Justice, visit theaiej.com 
That's theaiej.com, and you can look on her screen, theaiej.com. There we go. And until next time, tune into your own full body frequency, where large is luscious living. 